This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey there, Paisani. This is John Viola of the Italian American Podcast, and today I'm very proud to share with you a new project we've been working on. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you're probably well aware that we've made a conscious effort during these many weeks of quarantine to try to make our show a little bit lighter, focus on entertainment, education, and a chance for all of us to escape to our beloved Italian America every week for a little while and just get together and enjoy the beauty of our culture. But considering that two of the most effective places during this coronavirus pandemic have been the United States and Italy, we felt it was important that we provide some sort of service to disseminate news and updates and some on-the-ground, real-time encounters with this terrible, terrible outbreak. And so our co-host, Pat O'Boyle, the Wikipedia of Italian America, he has been working on this new show, which will air on Fridays, in which he'll conduct interviews with people both in Italy and in Italian America to get these inside looks at what we hope is the later phases of this global crisis. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming you on behalf of all of the co-hosts to this wonderful new project he's been cooking up. And so without further ado, I will introduce my friend, my compare, my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., Professore Patrick O'Boyle. Pat, take it away. Thank you, John. Um, to kind of reiterate and expand what John said is that when the virus hit, we knew that a lot of people were tuning in and being inundated and saturated with the stress and the, and the negative vibes that have been coming from, you know, just this, the, the fear of everything that's going on, that people didn't want to tune in to have another uh, Italian-American podcast again talking about the pandemic. That being said, we also realize that an advantage that John and I have is that we know so many people in Italy in so many different professions in so many different regions that we had access to information on the ground that few of the people have because we had people who were living it day to day. So we had thought of doing a podcast on what was happening in Italy. And we held off a little bit because once the U.S. started to get ratcheted up, it became almost everyone's attention was, was set on what was going on here. Like, it was almost like the fire from Italy had spread to the United States. Now that Italy is opening up, we thought that it would be a good time to do a small limited series talking to people that we knew in Italy that would be able to give us a bird's eye view and an in-depth view of what's going on in Italy right now with the lockdown what they experienced during the worst parts of the virus, what's going on now, and what they see happening in the future. So with that being said, I want to introduce Paul Ponte Corvo, who is a listener. So I am honored to say that our first guest on the show is Paul. Paul lives in Italy. I want to give Paul kudos because he is the first person, and you know, we've gotten to know many people who are listeners. Paul was the first person 
to tip me off to what was going on in Italy. He sent me a Facebook message, like, basically, do you see what's going on in the north of Italy? The first I had heard of the coronavirus or the lockdown or anything. And I was going around saying to people, wow, I was talking to one of the podcast listeners, and they're telling me that there's this virus in the north of Italy, and it's serious, and it's causing things to be locked down. And people just looked at me like I was crazy. I even brought it up to students at school. Everyone just thought it was just totally out there. And Paul was the canary in the coal mine. So, so many people said to me, well, how did you know about this so early on? Like, you know, you were the first person I heard about the coronavirus from. And the reason is because Paul Ponte Corvo told me. So besides that, Paul has great kudos in my book because his father's family were also from the Jersey City County Sorrento community. So even though Paul grew up in Indiana, he had a father from the Jersey City County Sorrento community. So you could see an all-star all the way around. So Paul, welcome. If you just want to maybe tell everybody out there, who you are, your background, why you're an American living in Italy, and everything else you might feel might be relevant to the conversation. Okay, well, thank you very much for the introduction. So, as Pat said, I was raised in uh, Indiana, and I uh, had an opportunity at some point to go uh, overseas. But in Indiana, of course, you know, there weren't a lot of Italian enclaves like there were out east. So, I lived in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, there were Italians there, but they weren't all living in one area. So I then um, had an opportunity to go overseas to work and uh, spent some time uh, working for a multinational in the UK, spent about four or five years working there, and then had an opportunity to to work down in, in Italy. And I was transferred down there in 2006 and have lived in Milan since uh, 2006. And the background of my, uh, my Italian heritage is all four of my grandparents were born in Italy and then immigrated to the United States. So half of them, my uh, paternal side, came from the Piano di Sorrento area. And then the other half on my maternal side came from a small town in Abruzzo called Fossa Cessia. So that's uh, how I uh, identify with the different regions in, uh, in Italy. So what's life been like living in Italy before coronavirus? And when you first went there, what kind of changes have you seen in Italy over the years that you've lived there? Um, yeah, when I, when I first uh, got here, you know, it was very, you know, everything was very new. Um, you know, I was still learning the language. I, I still am learning the language. But it was a time period, I think, when, you know, the economies were, were growing, you know, not super fast, but at, you know, pretty good rates. And it was a time where I think there was a lot of, you know, hope to really, you know, work the EU project as it, as it were. You know, it was a, a very kind of interesting time. From there, then, um, you know, when we started to get into um, coronavirus, it was, it was quite interesting to see reactions from different people and how things kind of progressed through these last few months. Let me ask you a question. You read American media. Do you think the American media was accurate about what was going on in the ground in Italy? I thought that they were fairly accurate. I didn't see like that they were trying to push it off as, you know, not not an emergency. I mean, especially like into March when they started to see, you know, how fast this was growing. And then when, you know, on the 9th of uh, March, when basically we shut down the whole country here, I think that kind of really got the attention of the American media. How did Italians handle the lockdown? I, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, on one hand, I thought like people did pretty good. 
at the very beginning, there was this camaraderie and, you know, trying to come together and, you know, we're going to overcome this together. Um, you also saw like there were some incidences where people were not following the rules. So they were going out, you know, against the rules basically, and they were getting fined. And these are not insignificant fines either because it's not like a parking ticket. It's actually like a criminal offense that they need to then litigate. But as time wore on, I think after about the first month, you know, when people that hadn't gone to work, hadn't received a paycheck, had to start paying rent, then I think things started to get a little tense. And people then, I think, started to, you know, really want to get out. So that's kind of how I saw things as they progressed. Because if you remember at the beginning, there were, you know, people on balconies that were singing songs, trying to like band together. And that kind of faded after about three weeks or so. And kind of a more kind of like, wow, this is a very serious situation. How am I going to make rent? How am I going to get my kids schooled? You know, all of these kind of other things really crept up that it was going to be a long haul issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, the beginning was the two, was all the Andra Tutto Bene and you saw all the kind of like, rah, rah, we're going to survive it. And then just from an outsider walking in, it seemed like a month in and all of a sudden the cheering stopped when people realized it wasn't just going to be a month long shutdown. This was going to be a long haul, crippling scenario. Why do you think Lombardia got hit so hard? And even very densely populated areas like Campania and Naples did not get hit as hard as Lombardia. I mean, I understand Molise, you have towns that are kind of scattered and it's more, you know, it's kind of like, I guess, what would you call it? The Wyoming of Italy in the sense that it's kind of all spread out. But what do you think? Do you think that the South just knew what was coming? And they were better prepared. They could handle it better. What, what do you see as why some parts of Italy got hit so tough and then other places were not hit as hard? Probably the number one reason to explain the differences between how the North got hit and the South got hit to me was just how interconnected the industrial North was with international travel. And that was not only just to China, but you know everywhere else. So there was so much more possibility for infection on these, you know, people coming in and, and, and actually people leaving and, and a lot of people in Italy that actually went to China to do business. So I thought that was probably more the stronger reason why there was a lot more up north than down south. Well, what was your day-to-day life like at the worst part of the lockdown? And what is it like now? Yeah, so literally like for... I would say 60 days. I, you know, stayed in my apartment in Milan. I didn't leave the house. The only time I left the house was for groceries or to take the garbage out or to pick up the mail. And that was literally it. And there were a couple of things that happened. I think this was on the 9th of March that, um, you know how like there's sometimes a photograph that really captures like, wow, I'm going to remember this image forever that, that stuck, uh, you know, about this crisis. It'll stick in my brain, you know, forever. And it was the time that they had um, 15 military vehicles parked outside of the Bergamo hospital to take away the coffins because there were so many people that were passing away and the cemeteries were full and the crematoriums were full that those military vehicles um, had to take people outside of Lombardia. And that photo, I think, was so iconic that I think it's, it will be burned in people's brains for a long time. So that was kind of at the height of it. You know, you're just watching the numbers go up. 
you're seeing photos like that, you're wondering like, wow, you know, are we ever going to hit a peak? And so it's a really kind of nerve wracking climb up that curve. And then when we hit a peak and we started coming down, I had the expectation we'd come down as fast as we went up, but that wasn't the case either. We kind of took a real slow ride down. And even today we're at about 150 people that are still passing away a day. So that kind of describes from March through April, which, you know, it was literally everyone was in their houses. Everyone was working from their houses, those who could. Those who couldn't, um, and, and sometimes their companies would put them on furlough. It's called Casa Integrazione here, and they get um, a certain amount of their salary paid for um, for a short period of time. It's kind of like unemployment in the U.S. And then in May, they started to loosen up the restrictions. So, you know, in March and April, if you wanted to leave your house, you literally needed a form that said why you were leaving your house. Can you explain that form? Because I think it's so different to a concept of what Americans are used to. Oh, yeah. So it's it's called an auto certification form. So you basically put your name, your ID number, your address. And there were like three evolutions of the form. But basically, you had to say, I'm not in quarantine. I did not test positive for COVID. And I'm going out for an essential need. And those needs were, you know, grocery pharmacy, if you were an essential worker, like a, a doctor or a nurse going to, you know, going somewhere. But you had literally had to carry that in your document with you at all times. And you weren't allowed to just go out and take a walk. You could not go out and walk for exercise. So that I think, you know, really taxed a lot of people as well, because everyone was trying to figure out how to stay fit at home. And they started to loosen that up between the 4th and the 11th of May. You could go for exercise, but you still needed that form. And it wasn't until uh, this Monday, the May 18th, that you didn't need the form at all, basically. The only time you needed that form was if you were traveling between regions. So if I was a doctor and I was going from Lombardia to um, Bologna and Emilia-Romagna, then I'd have to have that form, and it has to be an essential reason. But um, I can't just now go to another region in Italy, you know, without a good reason. Now, let me ask you, what do you feel Italians are feeling right now? Do you think they're afraid? They're scared? Are they confident? Do they feel that this is behind them? Are they concerned about, you know, the way 1918, the second wave was worse than the first? How would you say that those matters are kind of being thrown around in the mind of the Italians today? Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of cautious optimism right now, but there's always this fear of, is there going to be this second wave and, you know, is it going to come back stronger? So for now, I think people are optimistic because they see the cases dropping, they see restrictions loosening, so that feels like they're getting their life back again. But like, there's also things that, you know, I started to question things like in Milan, we have a lot of car sharing or shared transportation. So you can download an app. You can look to see where in the city a car share is. You go to the car, you open up the car and you get in and you drive and, you know, it's basically you pay by the hour. But now, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like, are people going to get in those cars, you know, without sanitation? And we have a lot of like bike shares, scooter shares, things like that. So like simple things that you wouldn't even think about are really like people are rethinking how they have to live their lives. And 
for now the schools are closed, but they're talking about in September opening them up, but then they showed like you have to do distancing. And I'm like, wow, I don't even think some of these schools have enough space to do distancing to keep the kids apart. So I think there's a cautious optimism right now. What, how is Italian media portraying what's going on now in the United States? And how are Italians digesting what they see as how America's handling the whole coronavirus crisis? Um, you, see, you see mainly like headlines here. So you'll see, you know, things about New York or you might see the headlines about like the nursing home issue in, uh, in, in New York. There were other shows that had uh, some of the protesters up in Michigan. So things like that kind of come through. Um, they're probably thinking that the Americans don't necessarily have a good handle on it either, because I think they see them wanting to loosen restrictions while at the same time, you know, there's no indication in some areas where, where, where some of that, uh, the, the, the positives are, are decreasing enough to, to do that. So uh, you really only see some of those like top headlines unless you dig deep. Now, let me ask you another question that I think a lot of the people in the U.S. have. Through the crisis, how do you see Italy's reaction to the EU, to Germany's response, France's response, how Germany and France have handled the crisis in their own countries, how they have dealt with Italy during the crisis? Is it true that there is a rising sentiment that maybe it's time for Italy's exit? Do they look at Britain and Brexit and say, maybe, you know, we're better off without them or really where were they in our hour of need? Yeah. If that is the case, do you think that's lasting? Do you think it's temporary and that's going to pass? Yeah. You know, I wrote down some things that happened in March through May that I thought like were really kind of touch points in here. So like in early March, there was an issue of PPE material being blocked going into Italy. And this was I think in France and Germany, they were blocking it. I, I don't know the exact reasons for it. And it got, somehow I think it got resolved, but the optics of that looked really bad for the EU because, you know, countries are supposed to be working together. So that was a something that happened in early March. The second thing that happened was on, on the 12th of March, the EU handed down a ruling to Italy. Now, this is three days after Italy has basically shut their economy that the Italian government was subsidizing Sardinian hotels for some reason, and that was illegal. Not, I don't know much about the case, but they gave this ruling, which basically fined Italy and then gave them kind of a daily fine until it was paid. And that, that optic really looked bad, you know, on a country that just shut down. Then on the 16th of March, China sent in about 30 doctors and nurses, I think, to help out in the Bergamo area. And on the 28th, Albania sent in a set of doctors and nurses. And then through the backdrop of that, then there was all this discussion about Corona bonds, which were supposed to spread the debt of the bailout across all the EU countries. Well, there was a lot of pushback on that. And, you know, you saw some of the Northern uh, European countries that didn't want to participate in that. Now, I just saw where um, France and Germany have come up with some kind of a bailout that doesn't need to be paid back. But at the same time, like all of the 2027, 20, I think it is, countries now have to ratify this. So these were kind of like illuminating points that I thought like, wow, that, you know, there's kind of a shift here in the attitude. And sure enough, they put out a survey and it showed that there's been a 20% rise in people in Italy who want to withdraw 
from the EU. So it went from, I think, 29% to 49%. That's not quite at a tipping point. It's still below 50, but that's a significant rise in a very short period of time. There were some other questions that were asked, like, do you agree that the EU is meaningless? And 59% of the people said uh, yes. And nearly half of the Italians kind of view Germany as an adversary, but they see China as an ally. So there's a pretty big shift in sentiment here in Italy. Is it going to be long lasting? You know, I don't know. It depends on, you know, how this shared debt gets resolved. I think that's going to be a a key driver in which way the sentiment may go. Let's talk a little bit about China. Do you think that China has been able to handle its image in Italy against the backdrop of, you know, the sentiments that the Chinese were not forthcoming, that the WHO was kind of, um, WHO was kind of playing ball with them, and the fact that had they been more forthcoming and had they been more honest in the beginning, that so many more lives could have been saved. Do you think that the gestures like sending doctors and nurses was enough to counteract that? In the mind of the Italian? Mm, Yes. Early on, I would say it helped a lot. But now I think there were some missteps on their part, Um, one of which was when China was in all this crisis, there was a lot of PPE material that was donated from Italy to China. Then when things started to go the other way and there was a crisis in Italy, the word that I heard, now I I need to go verify this, is that the, the PPE material was sold back to the Italians, even though they were donating it. So I think that was kind of a misstep in, and and there's a perception that like, wow, you know, we helped them out, but they didn't help us out. I think there's a growing sentiment that China hasn't taken responsibility fully in terms of either one, allowing investigators to come in so we can see the source of, you know, how this virus jumped from an animal into a, into a human and whether they did enough at the start to really, you know, inform all the other countries that this was a serious situation. Italy's portrayed so much in the media and in intellectual publications as being the economic sick man of Europe. <laughs> what the Ottoman Empire was on the eve of the First World War, in a governmental sense, Italy's now is in an economic sense. Do you think that Italy economically really is the sick man of Europe and that there's a possibility that this could be the linchpin that brings a whole house of cards to fall down? Ooh, that's a really tough question. I, I, um, I would say that um, there would have to be serious reforms, I think, um, you know, both on the, the, the labor and the financial side to really kind of pull um, Italy back to where they're in a, an economy that can grow. Part of the issue is the banking system across the EU never got resolved after the 2008 crisis. So there's no pan-European bank. It's all banks within countries. And if banks want to kind of consolidate, they can't consolidate across borders, basically. So that's a huge issue of not being able to resolve like, um, you know, part of the EU. But as far as being the sick man, I mean, I think they're very sick right now in terms of the economy, certainly. Could it bring the whole EU down? Yeah, possibly, but I don't, you know. Not to bring the EU down. Do you think it could bring Italy down? Do you think it could crash the Italian economy? That this is the perfect storm of a country that's highly indebted, that's been in like almost perpetual recession for 20 years, that kind of has issues now with currency, because I guess in the old days they were able to deflate the currency. They can't now. 
Yeah. Um, the fact that they rely so much on tourism and, you know, even if they open up, you know, after having six months of being displayed as a, as a, as a sanitary Armageddon, as a health crisis Armageddon around the world, people being afraid to go back. Do you think this is the linchpin that could crash the Italian economy? Well, I think I think definitely it's it's a pretty large shock right now because you've shut the whole system down. Now you're trying to restart it, but you can't get all the pieces working all at once. So I think they're already going to be in a very deep recession, if not a depression. I think that's it's very possible. One of the things they're trying to do is get tourism opened up as, as soon as possible. And they're trying to encourage a lot of the Italian families of like, you know, go on vacation, but try to go on vacation in Italy because they want to keep the dollars moving inside of uh, the economy. Do you think that a lot of people, because you're, you are in Milan, you're in Lombardia, do you think that the same way they're having conversations in New York with telework and being able to work from home, that people in the U.S. maybe won't be moving back to big cities or won't be able to commute in? The people who live in the suburbs, instead of going into work every day in the office, might be able to work from home three days and go in one day or two days going forward. Do you see the same thing happening in Italy, where people might, they, they went down to their parents' house in Abruzzo. Can you see people working now in Abruzzo who had jobs in Milan and, and teleworking, you know, working remotely from home? Do you, do you see that as a new, and maybe cities like Milan are going to have a, a population drop, and maybe countryside and the south might have a little bit of a population boom from this? I definitely think that every company is now looking at, you know, how many people do we really need in, a, in an office? And I think the possibilities now are wide open for them to really look and restructure their business. Now, does that mean you can be in one part of the country and, and, and not? It could be, but I'm not sure that Italy is ready for that. I think they would be ready like if you did partial time in the office or you worked from home certain amount of time per day. But I'm not sure about like how that could work out in the future, like working way far from, from the center. I just don't know if that's going to be in the cards yet. Paul, it is an honor to have you on. When we brought you into the classroom, you were fantastic. My, my students appreciate so much when you visit us via Zoom to tell them what was going on in Italy. And that inspired me to bring you on to be on the maiden voyage of our updates from Italy, uh, Italy reopening. And though we've, we know each other via Facebook and via the podcast, hopefully when this all passes, we'll be able to meet in person. So again, on behalf of the entire team, thank you very much. And our door is always open. Please come in for a cup of coffee. We'd, we'd love to have you back on. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be on. And uh, the, the, the invitation is two-way. So when you guys come to Italy, be it in Milan or Abruzzo, let me know. And we all know that you're, you're a man of a brilliant mind because you have Piano di Sorrento DNA. So from <laughs> one kind of taste to another, you could, see that the, you could see that it's a genetic thing. So thank you very much from the Bizan, from one Bizan to another. Thank you very much. And, okay. uh, you know, until we meet again. Thank you. Thank you.